and welcome to another episode of the First Incision, a CMF podcast, where we look at topics at the interface of faith and medicine that affect our Christian lives in today's world. I'm your host, Dr. James Howitt, and I've got with me today Dr. John Greenall. John, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Great so, to be here. So John is the National Fields Director with us uh, at CMF, and he's going to be talking today on the issues of transgender and children. Thank you so much for coming to, to be with us today. Tell us, first of all, um, what is it exactly that you do and, and why is this uh, transgender in children an issue that you're sort of so concerned about? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm a paediatric specialty doctor north of London. Um, I've worked in peds for, for over, just over 10 years. Um, and as you've said, I also work with CMF as um, National Field Director. And I, I'm, I'm passionate about working with children, particularly children from traumatised backgrounds. So I do some work in the community with looked after children particularly, but also work um, acutely on the wards um, as well. Um, yeah, I guess I'm concerned. I think many others are at the trends that we're seeing in, in society at the moment. As medics, we're seeing that play out on the clinics and um, and the wards in front of us. Um, I'm just thinking of an example recently. Um, a young girl was admitted to our, our ward um, with self-harm and, and suicidal ideation. And she said that she wanted to use a, a male name and, and male pronouns. And she was a young girl who was... Um, I had a very, very difficult background, a uh, very disrupted background, multiple uh, placements, um, diagnosis of depression, anxiety, um, and now saying that she wanted to be treated um, as, as a boy. Um, and the reaction was quite interesting. I mean, um, and I don't blame our staff, but, you know, there was, there was a lot of tiptoeing around. Um, we were told multiple times that we needed to use the pronouns he and his and um, that he could get upset if this, if this didn't happen. Um, and we've seen this over the last, um, just over the last two or three years, I've seen this happening more and more on the wards. It's, it's very new. Um, and, and gender dysphoria, used to be called gender identity disorder, has always existed um, in children. But we, we're seeing this almost contagion-like appearance of multiple children, particularly um, those who are a, a, a female wanting to identify as man. It's so star- stark and so sudden that I think that I'm concerned that we're rushing headlong into an area that's quite untested and uncertain scientifically, but also as a Christian, there are some um, issues that I have with it as well. So give us a, a feel of the scale for the, the transgender issue in the UK within kind of children and, and teenagers. Yeah, sure, James. I mean, I think we, let's be clear about, about definitions. So um, we're not talking about disorders of sexual development, which used to be called intersex. We're not talking about that. That's where um, see about one in 5,000 births, and I've seen a number of them where there's a recognised what, what we call deviation in development of the biological sex organs, um, and there are decisions to be made there. But um, transgender is much more about where biological sex is not in doubt, but instead um, the person may feel emotionally and psychologically that they were born perhaps in, in the wrong body, right. if you like. Um, so as you ask for numbers, um, I think, uh, interestingly, just... Just last year, um, a study in paediatrics, a big American journal, found that young people are, get this, 329% more likely than adults to identify as transgender. So hugely more than than adults. There are almost as many transgender teens as there are adult men and women who identify as gay and lesbian. So different category, but that just shows you the number. That's about 0.7% in children and young people. I mean, in the UK, there's been a 300% increase in the number of referrals to the tertiary Tavistock Clinic just in the last three years. Wow. We're talking about hugely steep rises. Um, And the Tavistock is still the only centre that deals with this for children in in the UK. It has satellite clinics in um, Exeter and Leeds. And I think very interestingly, more and more girls are being referred. So just nine years ago, 
41% of adolescents referred to the Tavistock were female. But in 2017, it was 69% were female. So a big, big spike in, in, in children. And I think um, linked to this is we need to be very clear that sa- very sadly, many children and adolescents who present as transgender often have troubled backgrounds and often multiple mental health diagnoses. And, and, I, and I, for one, and, and I know many of my colleagues are yet to meet a child um, who presents as tra- you know with gender dysphoria, that's the distress associated with it, mm-hmm. who hasn't had a dis- significant disruption to their background. Uh, and in fact, that's backed up by research. So a big study in the States, um, again in pediatrics, looked at 120,000 adolescents aged between 11 and 19 and found some really troubling things. So they found that 51% of female to male transgender young people had attempted suicide. That number is about 30% of male to female. And compare that to the rates in, in non-transgender teens, um, where that rate is about 18% of females in that population and 10% of males. So we're dealing with, I mean, these are, these are all figures, and it's easy to talk about figures, but we're dealing with real people, real young people, who are, are often are, are significantly troubled. Um, and I think we need to acknowledge that, and we need to acknowledge the burden of, um, of bullying and social isolation. Mm-hmm. We've all been there in the school playground. And I was bullied for different reasons when I was, when I was younger. And, it, and it, it can be brutal if you don't fit in. Um, and so if we're talking about these things and, and young people who have felt on the edge and isolated, if they feel that they're being included and that they're you know, happier because of that, then that's a good thing. But as, as, we, as we talk and as I, as I find out more, this is far more than that, though. This is about where gender's very definition, there's an attempt to actually change its definition so that it's something that our children choose, no, not even just can choose, but must choose for themselves. And I think we're seeing a number of children, well, the number of children who are confused about their gender identity soaring. And that, at the very least, that's interesting. And I feel it's also quite troubling. So obviously, we'll talk about choice, I think, in a few minutes time. Uh, but first of all, obviously, you've said this is about real people. So let's talk about real people. Um, a child presents as transgender. Uh, walk us through what might happen to them, what they might see and what the process is going to be that they might go through. Mm, sure. And as you say, every, every child is is unique. And it, uh, it's hard to say for everybody. But I think certainly there's, there's four main stages that we recognise. So the first is social transitioning. That can often happen from a very, a very young age. Um, and by the time that most children will, will see you as, as a medic in clinic or at least certainly go to a tertiary centre, they will have been socially transitioning for some time. That's the dress, the pronouns that they use um, and, and their identity, if you like, perhaps on social media as well. So after social transitioning, there is what we call puberty blockers. So these are for children who um, are defined as having persistent gender dysphoria as they're approaching puberty. Um, it's quite a widespread practice. There were 800 of these um, practices in the UK last year. Is to prescribe them what we call puberty blockers. And these are gonadotrophin-releasing hormone agonists. And the argument given for that uh, as a positive is that, look, this delays puberty. It means that these children aren't having distressing secondary sexual characteristics that might be very uncomfortable. It's a body that they don't feel comfortable in. But also that it buys them time to make... Um, decisions and figure out what to do um the reality is that nearly every single one of those 800 who are on puberty blockers uh, will then progress to cross-sex hormone treatment which is the third step and in the uk 
um, the NHS doesn't license um, treatment for under 16s. Right. Okay. Uh, although in private clinics, you are allowed to treat children, and, and children as young as 12, we think, are being treated with sex hormones. Gosh. And then the next step after that, as with adults, is is surgery. So it's a four four stage process, really. So obviously, when we're talking about children, and, and you've said even children as young as 12, in some cases, are, are being given some of these hormonal treatments. Uh, consent and capacity is often is obviously going to be an issue for us as medics, uh, and particularly around um, children who uh, I've been told some children put incredible pressure on parents and, and, and professionals by saying, look, I'm so distressed by this. If I'm not able to transition, I'm, I'm going to take my own life. How, how do we respond to that? And how, how is that kind of pressure and that consent managed between parents professionals and, and the child yeah as, as always in pediatrics it's a real balance that we want to listen to children as, as a pediatrician the first thing i want to do is respect and listen to children and hear them and make sure that their voices are heard in, in 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 a world where often it's adult voices that are heard so we take that very seriously and obviously we go on a case-by-case basis um, i think certainly my concern um, around this is more just a general groundswell that actually there's a lot of societal pressure um, that's coming on medics to accept at face value what a child is saying. So in the States, um, it's what, what they call a very, in inverted commas, affirming care process. So, you know, a child presents, they say they're gender dysphoric. Your response as a medic should be, OK, let's talk um, and let's accept you for who you are and help you in that. So we're very little counseling very little kind of challenge perhaps um children um you know will go down that route and some people feel that affirming care becomes almost a professional imperative you know don't question who these children are let them tell you who they are and then accept their identity in a nurturing and encouraging manner which sounds very kind and very gentle and 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 wonderful but the problem is the the stats they just don't back it up the medicine doesn't back it up and as medics we've been asked to give treatment in areas that I think many of us are very uncomfortable in, but the pressure is there from the climate. Now, the suicide, you mentioned that that, um, that suicide thing, which is very sad. Um, but the reality is that over 90% of children who present as transgender um, actually will then live in their birth sex if they're untreated. Okay. So they will go on to live in their in their birth sex. And I've, I've looked at all these studies. There's only 11 of them going back to 1972. Um, and, I mean, they're, they're overwhelming, really that actually they, they do often go back to their, their birth sex. And actually right. suicide rates are not higher. Okay. And we must resist this pressure um, to feel pressured to, to treat when actually the, the, the evidence of the efficacy of these treatments in the long run is still very untested. Um, so let's be ready to gently push back on that. The evidence doesn't support better outcomes. And we shouldn't be practicing medicine with a metaphorical gun pointing at our head. So you've obviously given us some statistics and we can see this is a, a massively growing area. Uh, what is driving this increase in referrals and the number of kids that are identifying as, as transgender? Um, it's been talked about, I know that some people say it's, it's a mental health crisis and it's linked to social media. Others say it's, it's because it's more acceptable and more socially, socially kind of understood mm. and accepted. Is there, is there a definitive answer as to which mm. one it is? Yeah, good question. I think the overall answer is we don't really know yet. Okay. Um, the question is really, are, are adolescents who are generally unhappy with life anyway more likely to present as transgender? Right. Or is their misery a result of societal attitudes and that it was always there as a latent thing anyway? Um, and I, I think that, you know, a small number of children, as has always been the case, have persistent 
and I think genuine gender dysphoria. Okay, there's no doubt about that. The numbers are very tiny, but that is, that is true. But I, I think it's it's likely that many young people who are in, in difficult and complex family situations are seeking attention and affirmation. I mean, just yeah, just looking on the war, just looking at the response of adults to children who say, "Hey, I'm 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 transgender." It gets people hopping around and, and, and dancing around and being very careful around them. It, it, it grabs a lot of attention. And I'm not blaming the kids for that, but I think that's certainly an issue. I mean, interesting, I, I, there's this, this um, study published in PLOS One in 2018, um, surveyed thousands of teens who presented with this rapid onset gender dysphoria in adolescence. And they found that the, the majority of those had pre-identified mental or developmental issues that had been diagnosed. Um, and I think, as I, as I said earlier, that's my experience on the wards. I think it's the it's the experience of everyone I speak to who see children like this. So I think the mental health thing is is certainly there's only something to that. Definitely something to that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, you mentioned acceptability. Is it because it's coming more acceptable? Well. Yeah, I think, of course, it's been promoted and normalised by the media. Um, I think the end of 2018, the BBC said that it plans to further promote LGBT culture on screen. Apparently, this is to avoid a heteronormative culture, um, and therefore people's LGBT identities will be shown um, more often, regardless of their relevance to the storyline or the news item. And so I think that it is more acceptable um, and what might have previously been a normal part of childhood to briefly explore, you know, what does it mean to be a boy or, you know, to be, to be a girl, for example, that it's been potentially jumped on a little bit. And uh, it's about saying, well, you know, no, you need to explore this. And this is something for you to define. Um, and we celebrate, don't we? We, we? we celebrate those who come out as the real me. Um, if they come out as transgender, the big, big celebration, affirmation to go the other way and say, well, actually, no, I am going to live in my birth sex I think many adults and, and children will also say they're not celebrated um, in quite the same way um, so I think we just have to realize that you know, the popularity and focus on children who have perhaps previously felt isolated or, or who have in difficult situations they're going to get more attention um, which of course you would I mean, that's that's a really difficult situation to be in as a child you're searching for who you are and you're looking for people to a community to belong to and to be celebrated for that, that identity meaning as well i suppose to some absolutely degree. absolutely so obviously you've mentioned a little bit about social contagion and particularly rapid onset gender dysphoria uh, could you unpack those a little bit can they be a, a trigger for the rising referrals as well yeah, really interesting point. I mean, very interestingly, before 2012, um, there were there were very few cases and pretty much no research on adolescent females who develop gender dysphoria that first starts in adolescence. But but parents have been reporting over the last few years um, that their children are just are, are kind of describing this rapid onset gender dysphoria, if you like. It appears for the first time um, during puberty or even after its completion. And it's Lisa Lippman and her colleagues did this this study. Um, and they found that, that there was this context of a, of a peer group where one or maybe multiple friends have become gender dysphoric or identified as transgender, um, and they've done so during the same same time frame, um, and that the parents report increased social media use. We know that particularly you know, particularly with girls, social media use has obviously grown since 2011, 2012 with the advent of um, the ubiquitous smartphone. And uh, yeah, Littman in her study talks about this cluster of outbreaks occurring in this, in this groups of friends, um, and this, you know, raising the possibility of social and peer contagion. And we just just look at YouTube. We know there's many of these celebrities like Jazz Jennings who have millions of followers, 
Um, so I think it's a it's just something there for us if we're parents to think well what are our children looking at who are they following these stories are, are very powerful we know of course that we see similar trends with something like anorexia you know with um, a, a number of adolescent girls usually in the same place at the same time with a definable set of social relationships identifying with certain eating disorders and we see these pop up and from, from place to place suicide contagion as well so they, these social dimensions are difficult to map but we're beginning to map them a lot better um, and it just it's just that awareness that particularly with young vulnerable and developing minds um, on social media um, very much children very much more um, at risk of, of many mental health diagnoses uh, using social media early on but the fact that this ideology and personal narratives about transgender are out there um, and that as we treat and counsel children we should be aware of uh, of these things and, and have some understanding of what's what they're looking at so john i'm you've laid out the the topic fantastically for us and, and that's really great thank you so much um i'm sure that the, the question on everyone's lips and certainly on mine is with all the stuff that you've laid before us what on earth do we do about it what should our responses as christian medics be to this to this issue mm. yeah and i think that's, that's a really good question i, mean, I, I think i hope that, that those listening would join me in, in thinking that actually compassion for children is the first place we should start because so many of what we meet are feeling bullied and, and rejected and have had difficult lives we need to be aware that there are some who are going to present with real gender dysphoria we still don't know why there's obviously generally a mixture of nature and nurture there but it's a real thing in a small number and we need compassion and we need to treat them with thoughtfulness and respect we need to get to know families and of course if you're a general practitioner you'll know that long gone are the days we have this build up, built up relationship with families over years where you can actually see them and understand them and often you may see a child for the first time or the second time and be asked to refer them to a gender identity clinic but i just encourage us to to try and have those conversations um, to encourage reflection to actually give them the evidence in, in its broadest brush strokes uh, with all the uncertainty that's there and be there to support them if a referral is actually necessary to be there and support these children and these families. Um, I, I hear people say, well, John, would you use preferred pronouns on the wards? And I, my answer to that is, again, I want to get to know the child. If I felt that it facilitated their care, that I needed to do that, I would. Um, but as with my opening example, I've seen people hopping around and jumping around. Um, and I think we've just got to be careful. We, we risk being complicit um, in a lie that the child, say, you know, the, the child says who they are um, is at that very moment something that we should unquestioningly and immediately affirm. I don't think that's healthy for our children as well. So compassion with, with balance. I think we also need to practice good medicine. Um, as Christians, that's our prime duty really is to be practicing good medicine. And I think I've already laid out that there is not convincing evidence that these interventions are helpful. Um, you know, look, children can't vote, they can't smoke, they can't drink, they can't leave school, but we are allowing them to make decisions about their facility and sexual function in an increasingly unfettered way and and that makes me uncomfortable and it makes me uncomfortable about prescribing puberty blockers and, and cross-sex hormones to children in my care um, I think you know for, for cross-sex hormones that's not such an issue because there aren't these shared care agreements um, but I think as a conscience issue we need to be thinking about that as well as Christians okay uh, fine. So finally, from a from a theological perspective, what does this debate tell us a bit about authority and, and identity and, and how we as Christians kind of view that versus the, the secular world? I, yeah, I think this has very interesting you know, reflections on 
on what authority is you know where does authority come from you know it, it's a boy it's a girl you know we, we are for, for so many years we have um imbibed this a scientific view of, of male and female which which lines up with a biblical view um, that men and women are created as male and female with this external authority that we're actually given our identities from outside of ourselves. But obviously in, in society, we're increasingly rejecting that and saying that there's the idea of authority coming from outside of us, especially a divine being, especially from the Bible, um, we're increasingly suspicious of that authority. And interestingly, I think medics and people in positions of authority in society are also being increasingly being seen to be a potential threat to personal autonomy. And when you have unfettered personal autonomy and individualism, these things can be seen as, as a threat. And so our secular society locates authority in human beings and even in our children. And yes, we need to respect and listen to our children, but we also need to protect them from making harmful choices. So I believe that adults have a role in that. The government has a role in that as medical professionals as responsible medical professionals we have a re responsibility um, to help protect children um, and i believe as a christian that's a god-given authority that we need to handle obviously with great care but when that authority is rejected um, and ultimately it is a rejection of this god-given authority to both parents and, and government and so on we run into problems because everyone can just do as he or she sees fit to run their lives so when a boy insists that he's a girl what do we do do we affirm his feelings or or do we gently but also firmly remind him that he's created as a boy that he's unique and perhaps feels different to many other boys but actually he's no less of a boy that plays into i think issues of as having overly tight restrictive gender stereotypes where we say you know oh, if you're a boy you need to be a rugby player or if you're a girl you need to like ballet and like and like pink and I think that's very unhelpful. Mm. And the message to a boy who perhaps um, presents uh, more in a more feminine way or has interests that are more traditionally you know, associated with females is to, is to be able to say, look, you're no less male. I can affirm you as a boy, that God's made you as a boy, and you can be secure in that identity. And the great freedom, you see, I think, James, is that as Christians we can say we're free in the identity that God has given us. There's no pressure to create an identity for ourselves particularly as children, um, that we don't have to figure out who we are, but the creator who made us, who loves us, who knows what's best for us, um, can tell us who we are. And I think that's, that's wonderful. And so I think as Christian medics, we've, it, it makes it tough for us in this society. Absolutely. Um, will we do good medicine? Uh, will we really seek to treat the vulnerable from abuse and harm? Um, you know, the evidence does support the biblical worldview that God has made us male and female. There are, of course, some very small numbers where that is a struggle with true gender dysphoria. Uh, but we recognise there that the fall does affect us. The fall affects us socially, psychologically, physically, um, sexually. It does that to all of us in different ways. Um, but I think that the issue here is about, is about confusion. Um, and that there's a confusion around one's basic identity as male or female. And that is the most fundamental confusion that can be sown, uh, I believe, by, by the evil one. And if we allow this to go unchecked, um, it, it's no wonder, I think, that children and, adult, and adults as well are confused about other areas of life. So I think that in this profession, you know, let's not make an exception on this issue mm -hmm. as Christians and as, as, as medical practitioners. Let's not look back in years to come and say that when our children most needed us to stand up for them, that we bottled it. That's my, that's my 
my hope and my prayer. Amazing, John. Thank you so much. Um, finally, is there anywhere that people listening can go if they're more interested in the topic, go for further information, anything like that, any resources you can recommend? Great. Yeah, I, th- I think there's some very helpful things. So I think online there's a helpful website called Transgender Ch- Trends, which just checks some of the, the, the facts and so on that, that, that we see. I think familiarise yourself with some of the stories of, uh, of transgender young people on YouTube. I think it's helpful to, to walk a mile in their shoes. A number of good books um, from a Christian perspective as well. Transgender, a very short one by Vaughan Roberts. Andrew Walker has a book called God and the Transgender Debate, which I think is very helpful, um, particularly thinking of it as parents. Um, Understanding Gender Dysphoria by Mark Yarhouse is another good treatment um, of the topic as, as well. So, yeah, I'd recommend all of those as places to go. Great. John, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for, for sharing and, and imparting to us. It's been fantastic. Um, Hope that you've all enjoyed that and uh, we look forward to hopefully being with you uh, in a couple of weeks' time for another episode. Thanks and God bless.